favorite lines is, how dare she call me Martha? That was good, man. <laughs> My goodness, man. Welcome, welcome. Well, we get, we get more, more needs here from God's word as we open up the scriptures together. And man, God has a, a word for us that I believe will follow beautifully from what the ladies have been sharing with us to this point. I want to start out in prayer. I want to pray for you teachers. I counted over a dozen people here at the Brook that work for the Chicago Public Schools. Um, and uh, we're, we know this is uh, a lot. Yeah, you can give your hands for them. We know there's a lot for you guys this past week or last few days with the, the, the CTU strike. And um, I want to say this, man, like, I know the people who work for the public schools who are here at the Brook. Uh, I don't see you as greedy people. And in fact, I think you guys do an amazing job. And I think all of us would agree to that. And we have others who are educating in other school systems. Uh, you guys have a hard job, whether you're in the classroom teaching or you're in the office or you're a security worker or whatever position you have in the schools. We're thankful for you guys. And we pray that there'll be a quick resolution to this strike to get you guys back in work and to get these kids back in school. A resolution that's good for you, good for the, the Chicago Public Schools. We know this is complex, man, but we just want you to know that we support you and we are thankful for all of you. Um, I want to pray. Yeah. And we're going to get digging. Father in heaven, I praise you for this morning and already how you have answered the prayers that we prayed before service, God, when we gathered in our pre-service prayer time. We asked, God, that it would be so clear that you were among us today. And God, we haven't even gotten to the sermon yet, and you've said, I'm here. It hasn't been a whisper, although you often speak as a whisper, uh, but you've been shouting, I am here. And Lord, I thank you for that. I pray for every person who is new to our church family today, that they would know that, God, surely you are among us. And it's not based on us, but based on you. And so, God, I pray you continue to speak as you've been doing already. I pray that you would uh, uh, meet us each individually as you see fit. Father, as we ask every week, we continue to ask that these eyes of ours would be able to see you. That these ears of ours would be able to hear you. God, I pray that you would loosen my tongue to speak your word with power, passion, and persuasion. And you get all the glory and all the credit. We ask your blessings upon the churches in our community. God, may we lock arms for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's an age-old experience where we experience great victory in our faith journey, followed by some real trials. You ever been there? It's crazy. As I talk with those who, uh, after the men's retreat, many of the fellas talk with the ladies after their retreat, even starting up our real communities, uh, we've seen for, in the lives of many that you've made courageous decisions to follow Jesus, and as soon as you do that, you feel like you're a target. You ever been there? Are you there? If you're not there, you will be if you decide to follow Jesus. Maybe you made a decision to follow him, and the week you got home, there was pressure at work, and you're like, this didn't happen before. Maybe you decided to take a stand for sexual purity. And now you find yourself daily seduced by pornography or that relationship. Maybe you made a conscious choice to stop playing hard to get with God and surrender your life to him. And you get some health scares. 
right after that. Maybe you've committed to being generous with your finances, but you end up owing more in an area that you didn't expect to owe. Maybe you determined to be bolder in your faith, and you get in trouble at work for pushing your religion on somebody. You know, when we, we come to make bold steps and moves for God, expect yourself to be met with opposition. Expect it. We tell the men at the men's retreat, usually almost every year at the closing session, you leave with a target on your back. And I know some of you, Monday morning, you got hit with something. Maybe when you walked into the house, you got hit with something. Or even one person in the brook, they woke up the next morning and their car window was smashed out. These things happen. And a lot of times we start saying, God, what's going on here? Why is it that when I was not following you, in some ways it felt like life was a bit easier? And, you know, I think a lot of times we need to come to grips with the fact that there is something going on in this world that's more than what our eyes can see. See, I was reading in Colossians 1 from my devotions yesterday where Paul says, I give thanks and praise to God. And he says, why? He says, because he has delivered you out of the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son. But notice, the plucking of one domain comes with the transferring to another domain. And don't you think for a moment that the enemy, Satan, would be okay with him being plucked from his hands and brought into God's hands, from you being plucked? He's going to put up a fight. In addition to that, our God is good. And he knows that when we make a commitment, the best way to know the sincerity of that choice is to what? Put it to the test. And so many of us stand here today saying, man, I had victory, but now I'm experiencing some misery. And God, what's up with that? If you know what I'm talking about, I need to hear some amens. You ever go to the carnival? And Erica has used this illustration for various things. I think it's so good. You ever go to a carnival and there's that whack-a-mole game where the mole peeks his head up? What do you got to do with it? Boom, you nail it. And another one pops over here. You hit it there. You hit it there. And don't you ever feel like that with your Christian faith? You stand up. It's like, oh. You wait, you know, another day. You stand up and you get hit. And it's like, is is this a -a whack-a-mole? And the answer is, yes, it is a -a whack-a-mole. You see, because we know this truth from the Bible, that faith lessons learned through trials outweigh those that are learned without them. There are things that you and I have to go through in order for our faith to be refined. Now, we wear our faith on our sleeve here at the brook. We are about Jesus, and we believe that he alone can save us from our sin and give us eternal life. And we want you to know as you walk with him, things may get difficult, but I promise you, Victory that turns to misery will turn back to victory. In Jesus now and ultimately for eternity. Like that's one person who heard me here. I don't know about you guys. In Jesus, there is victory. Ultimately, he wins. And so as we walk with him, we should expect there to be hardship. But we can know that no matter what we go through, ultimately he wins. And you know, the Bible is filled with one story after another of people experiencing these things to be true. And today I want to tell you about David who experienced this to be true in his life. We find ourselves in the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 18. 
we're going to see that when life goes from victory to misery, victory will always ultimately win. And we're going to define that for us in 1 Samuel 18. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. And uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet if you're able to, please. And join me as we read from the scriptures. We are on what page in our chair Bibles? 241. This comes after the story of David and Goliath, which we talked about last week. This great victory. David slays Goliath, takes off his head. The king Saul is amazed at this young man. And he says, I'm keeping you close to me, kid. 18 verse 1 says this, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that's David finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, that's David's son, the heir to the throne, by the way, the, I'm sorry, Saul's son, thank you. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day, that's David referring to, and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul sent, sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. And this is what they said. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry at this saying. It displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? Verse 9. And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. And he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. That's an instrument that God used to calm Saul's spirit. And as he did this day by day, Saul had a spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him how much? Twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before Saul, before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David. For he went out and came in before them. This is God's word. You may be seated. <clears throat> How quickly the, table, the tables turn for King David, or David, who's yet to be king. Let me do some backtracking and let us know 
where we're at in this story. David was anointed. That means that the prophet Samuel, by God's authority, said, David, you will become the next king. That's pretty victorious, I would say. The next chapter, David goes out and defeats the nine-and-a-half-foot giant warrior killing machine, Goliath. That's victory, right? Do you remember what was promised to the one who defeated Goliath? The daughter of the king. So David is anointed as a future king, slays Goliath, and is promised the princess as his next wife. Well, furthermore, we see that David also became best friends with the prince. This is a pretty victorious moment for David. Not only that, when he comes home after a battle, people made a song about the dude. I mean, when people make songs about you, that's a pretty good thing normally. David is living the high life here. Things have gone great. He is best friends with the king, with the king's son. He's chosen to marry the king's daughter. People making songs about him. He killed Goliath, and he knows that that throne is going to be his victory. But what we find is that what follows is misery. You see, it's wild how it says there in verse 7 that the women celebrated. They saw this for what it was. This is a good thing. The Philistine army was mocking God's army. They realized God had given them victory. They are there just proud and celebrating. They make this song. But the problem is this song is extra catchy. It's like 588-2300. All right? 773-202. All right? Y'all, man. Like a good neighbor? All right, so you all know the power of a catchy jingle. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. You ain't got to be a mathematician to know what they're saying here. You ain't got to be a poet to understand this verse. Basically, they're saying, our king's a great warrior. But man, that David is something else. And, David, and Saul, in verse 8, became very angry. And I love how he says it here. He says, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've only given thousands. Like, he sounds like a little boy having a pity party because that got ten pieces of candy and he only got five, right? How did he get all those candies? How come he's giving 10,000? I'm giving 1,000. And this is what it sounds like. You're like, really, dude? And then he makes this dramatic statement. What else is he going to want? My whole kingdom? Why would he say that for? Well, because the writing was on the wall. See, in chapter 15, when Saul broke faith with God, God told him through Samuel the prophet, I'm done with you. And I'm going to give your kingdom to another who is better than you. Imagine living with that promise over your head as the king. And now he's seen this young man whom he was very proud of at first getting very popular and scarily powerful. And Saul's like, ah, I see what's going on here. And I'm giving him my daughter? What follows for Saul 
are aggressive plots to kill David. Victory turns into misery pretty quickly. Sometimes as quick as a drive home from a retreat, right? Victory turns to misery so quickly for David that we see in verse 11, Saul hurls a spear at him. Not once, but twice. That's pretty bad when your future father-in-law throws a sword at you. (laughs) Saul is becoming aggressive. He misses, which by the way, Brother, you're the king. you got to have better aim than that. I mean, the guy's playing a liar. You couldn't hit him twice, right? Uh, So first time he throws a spear. Second time he throws a spear. Look at verse 13 of chapter 18. So Saul removed him from his presence. Like, get this kid away from me. But let me make him a commander of a thousand soldiers. Why? Because he's going to go off to war. What's Saul thinking? Let those guys take care of him. But what do we see here? In verse 14, and David had success in all his undertakings. And Saul's like, are you kidding me? Even the other armies can't kill this guy. So what Saul decides to do is to just hope the enemy destroys him. But he's got a daughter that's supposed to be wed to David. What does he do? Well, look at verse 19. But at that time when Merab, that's the daughter of Saul, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel for a wife. So the promise he made to David for slaying Goliath, he backtracks. Saul here is working a plan to get David angry, to get David killed. But then we see another interesting thing in the story in verse 20. Now Saul's other daughter, Michal, loved David. And Saul's like, are you kidding me? My son Jonathan loves him. My daughter loves him. The people are making songs about him. But then he got creative. Because when in, in an arranged marriage situation, as was common in the ancient Near East and still in many cultures today, the groom-to-be needs to give a bride price to the father of the bride. Now, what do we know about David's upbringing? What was his career? He was a shepherd. Who were the shepherds? The poor people. Can a poor man afford the bride price for the daughter of the king? Well, you would think, well, you killed Goliath. That's a pretty big price you've already paid. But that's, that story's gone. She, she's been given to someone else. So Saul concocts a plan. All right, David, you can have my daughter. And you don't even have to pay me a bride price. And he sends a messenger to tell David this. In verse 22, speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delighted in you, and all servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servant spoke those words in the ear of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servant of Saul told him, Thus so did David speak. And Saul said then, Thus you shall say to David, the king desires no bride price except 100 foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now you're like, that is weird. Why would he want 100 guys foreskins? That's just really creepy, right? Well, here's what's going on. Do you remember what David called Goliath? How dare this uncircumcised Philistine 
You see, the people of Israel, God's people, were known to be his people by the men, the boys being circumcised on the eighth day. That was just a mark of God's people. And if a man who was non-Jewish wanted to become part of God's family, he needed to become circumcised no matter how old he was. And so as a marker of identity, this is what the people of Israel did. On the opposite side, those who weren't circumcised, therefore, were not of the people of Israel, but most importantly, were not of the God of Israel. They were the enemy. So what Saul decides is, let David, who's very much zealous for God, go out and defeat the army of the Philistines and bring back 100 foreskins as a demonstration of his zeal for God and for the nation. But what's Saul's thought here? Let him die on the battlefield. So what does David do? Well, in verse 27, David arose and went along with his men, and he killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul had to, at this point, (laughs) give David his daughter. Not 100, but 200 foreskins. He threw a spear at him once, a spear at him once, twice, made him as a commander to put him at risk, wants him to be valiant in war. He sends him to get the foreskins to try to kill him off. Now what else is Saul going to do to remove this young man who's becoming quite a legend there? Well, in chapter 19, verse 1, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But there's another problem. What's the problem? Jonathan and David are best friends. So his now six plot foils, because Jonathan's like, Dad, don't do this. David slew Goliath for us. He's done these great victories, and he persuades his dad against it. Within chapter 19, verse 10, another time, this evil spirit comes on Saul. David begins to play his harp. And it's a liar. And in verse 10 of chapter 19, Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear again, but he eluded him. A third time. What would Saul do to kill David? It's thing about David right now. He has caught on to this. He knows what's going on. Well, finally, as the rest of the, uh, chapter 19 tells us, David's at home with his wife, Saul's daughter, And he's catching on, my my dad, your dad's trying to kill me. He sneaks out at night. Saul sends the soldiers to attack David's house. They break through the doors. They go to his bedroom where they expect him to be asleep. And he's not there. He escapes one more time. David's victories turn south really quick. He is now a man on the run. He connects with Jonathan. Jonathan's like, look, David, you got to go. My dad wants you dead. You're in trouble. I want to talk and and park here, but before I do that, I want to talk about what's going on in Saul's heart. Because what's taking place is the poison of jealousy in Saul. He can't stand what's going on with David right now. And this is very much a side note to the overarching sermon I'm given, but it's central to this chapter 18. You see, what happens with Saul is that he is jealous. And all of us need to understand that jealousy causes God's victories for others to be your displeasure. 
You see, Saul is looking at what God is doing with David, and he is jealous of it, and he cannot be happy with it. He can't celebrate with someone else when things are going well for them. That is a poison that will make you miserable. You want misery? Be jealous. I remember this happened to me when I was a, a kid. I played football at Kelvin Park, uh, high, uh, Kelvin Park the Park, and I, I, was a, I was a bench warmer. Let me just put it real. I was, I was trying to think of another way to say it. And we had a great team my first two years when I didn't play a lot. And then the year I was the starter, we had a bad team. Go figure. But one year, we had to play our championship game at Soldier Field. It was an exciting thing. And I'm on the sideline. We're playing this team, and I'm watching, and I'm thinking, it sure would be nice to play. The game goes on and on. There's like 14 seconds left in the game. We're winning by plenty enough. Coach is like, Rivera, you're the cornerback. And I'm like, really? 14 seconds? I think I got one, maybe two snaps in. And we win the game. We win the city championship. We're in Soldier Field. We go into the locker room. We're celebrating, yada, yada, yada. And you know what I'm doing? Pouting. I'm literally crying in my locker room. And one of my teammates, I remember telling me, like, hey, what's, what's going on? He's like, I, told him, I told him this. I'll never forget it. I would have rather lose and play than win and not play. That's not good, (laughs) y'all. Talk about not being able to celebrate with others. But jealousy would do that. Saul was jealous. Jealousy will make you irrational so that points of praise become assets for anger. He had every reason to rejoice. Goliath was about to destroy them. He was the one who's, on, who's there, and David got him off the hook. That's a point of praise, but because of jealousy, it became an asset to anger, and now he's mad. Jealousy will give you an insatiable appetite for power, fame, and recognition. And the problem with those things are they will never be satisfied. Saul was the most powerful man in the land. He was the king. He was revered, and it wasn't enough because he didn't get praise. Jealousy made Saul miserable, and Saul's jealousy made David miserable, and David's victory turned to misery. He is now on the run, and he had to run quickly. So much so that he runs to the most unlikely place in chapter 21. I'm going to speed up here in a moment. Chapter 21, verse 10. It says this, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, you might be saying, Gath, that sounds like a familiar place. Who was from Gath? Goliath. David was so desperate that he knew he wasn't welcomed in his own nation that he runs and flees to the Philistine place to hide. And of all places, Gath, like, David, what are you thinking, bro? And David's like, I've got... it's, 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 I got to run or die. So he goes to Gath, hoping he's going to fly under the radar, and they find him there. They bring him to the king, and the king's like, all right, you know, things are cool here. And then look what they say in verse 11. The servants of the king said to him, is not this David, the king of the land? He wasn't king yet, by the way, so they were wrong, but they heard the reputation. Did they not sing to another the him, uh, another of, uh, of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? This song went platinum, yo. <laughs> like, it's not even in Israel. It's popular in Philistia. 
David, it says in verse 12, took these words to heart. Because what a great prize David would be for the king of the Philistines to bring to Saul. Can you imagine a price on David's head? How's David going to escape this one? Here's the man anointed to be the king of Israel in verse 13. So David changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands. And he made marks on the doors of the gates and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish the king, he said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you brought this fellow to, to behave as a madman in my presence? Should I bring him to my house? He's like, I got enough crazies in my kingdom. Why are you bringing me this guy? Get him out of here. David escapes by acting crazy. Isn't that wild? Talk about victory to misery. I wonder if David's like, man, this is not how I expected this to play out when Samuel showed up at my house. When, the, when, when I was anointed and the Spirit of the Lord rushed on me, man, I didn't expect to find myself drooling, pretending to be crazy, making marks on the wall just to escape. You ever find yourself in the midst of the misery saying, man, I sure did not expect things to go this way when I chose to follow God. I sure did not expect this when the Spirit of the Lord empowered me when I put my faith in Jesus. I, I, did, I did not expect it. And this is where David was. So what does David do? Well, he's got to flee again. He's not welcomed in Israel. He's not welcomed in Philistia. So he goes into a place in chapter 22, verse 1, called the Cave of Edelon. He now becomes a cave dweller. The man that they made songs about. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to meet him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Crazy, huh? David ends up in a cave and people from all over the land meet him there. People who were in debt, people who were distressed, people who were miserable because they said, hey, just like you, David, I've got no place in this land. You see, David is in the cave and life is upside down. And you find yourself, I know it, many of you finding yourself in a cave of Adullam right now. And you're like, how did I get to this dark place when I tried to follow Jesus? Maybe it's the place of fear for you. It's a place of anger. It's a place of venting where you're crying out to God or a place that's like a wilderness. But I love as our ladies were testifying here because we say and we look at this, man, the enemy is really attacking David. And yes, on the one hand, I'm sure he is, but let's not remember that our God is sovereign. And things don't happen by accident in God's economy. How does David end up in Philistia acting like a madman? How does David end up in the cave of Adullam? See, God is trying to show David, look, David, you trusted me against Goliath, but I've got to refine that faith of yours to lead this nation. This cave has to become your prayer closet. This cave has to become your sanctuary. And you are today going from victory to misery, but God's like, that misery could become a place of victory for you. 
where you turn to me and learn to trust in me. So retreat to that cave of Adullam and say, Lord, meet me here. Retreat to that cave and watch how God will use that to turn your misery to victory. How does David get through it? I look at this and I'm like, we're not told David's thoughts. All we see earlier, he thought to himself he needs to pretend to be crazy. We see here he goes to the cave. We're like, but what's going on in this man's faith in this moment? Sometimes you look at scripture like, tell me more. What I love, though, is God has told us more. Because David was not just a great military warrior. He was also a great poet, a songwriter, who wrote some half of the book of Psalms. And if we turned to Psalm 142, and if you're able to do that right quick with me, join me there. I'm going to land this plane soon. Please hold on with me. We haven't got to the good part yet. Psalm 142. When we read the book of Psalms, look at the prescript, those little words above verse 1. Because in Psalm 142, verse 1, it says, A maskeel of David when what? He was in the cave. David wrote Psalm 142 when he was in a cave, the cave of Adullam. And what does it say in verse 1? With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. What's David doing in the cave of Adullam? He's worshiping God through complaint and crying out and saying, God, how did I get here? When you are in this cave, you come to God with those emotions. Let's go over to Psalm 57. Psalm 57. Again, reading that prescript. To the choir master according to Do Not Destroy, which was clearly a a melody of some sort. A miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. And what does David say in verse 3? He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. What does he say even in verse 1? My soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wing. Look in verse 9. I will give thanks to the Lord, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. What is David doing in the cave of Adullam? He is worshiping his God. He is crying out to God saying, I don't know God was going on. But Lord, you are my refuge. I find no shelter anywhere else but in you. One more Psalm, 34. How did David get out of the Philistine? king hand psalm 34 of david when he changed his behavior that's when he acted crazy y'all before abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away what does david say in psalm 34 verse 4 i sought the lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears those who look to him are radiant their face shall never be ashamed this poor man cried and the lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles And then what did he tell everyone else in verse 8? So why don't you do what I did when I'm in my cave, when I'm on the run? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. 
So what do we do when we go from victory to misery? We must understand that in the misery, there still is victory in God. There's victory in God. He wants us to turn to him because it's part of him shaping and molding who you are in Jesus. You don't know how good you are in a school subject until you get tested. And the same is true of your faith. But you know what? I find this to be a little bit of like a, like a game when I read the Old Testament and when I come preaching to you. Because I believe that the Bible is one story of God and his redemption from Genesis to Revelation. And I believe that the climactic moment of the scriptures is when God became a man. And I believe that everything in the Bible points to Jesus. From Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God to the end of Revelation when we say, come Lord Jesus quickly. And when I read the Old Testament, I'm like, God, where's Jesus here in this story? God, God where's Jesus here? And it's, it's kind of a fun challenge because if we're going to faithfully preach and understand the word, we got to see that God has a message through Jesus. And as I read 1 Samuel and I read David's struggles, I realize that J- David was not the only one who was sent into a wilderness after a victory being his baptism. Jesus went, got baptized, and as we heard earlier, the Spirit of the Lord sent him in the wilderness, and there Satan tried to capitalize on the test. Just as David was in the wilderness. But what I also love is that just as with David, it's so true with us, because Jesus has gone into the wilderness and lived this life that we could not live on our own. And just as those who were distressed, indebted, and embittered soul came to David to find refuge, the Bible tells us that that's what Jesus comes to do, is bring refuge to us who are distressed in our soul, who are indebted to our sin and death and Satan, and who are bitter in our heart. And we could find refuge in Jesus, the great son of David. And he is a leader worth following, church family. You see, we can go from victory to misery, but in Jesus, there is always victory. He took your sin on the cross and died for it. He took your shame and put it away. He took your guilt and said, not guilty, not because of you, because of me. And the promise to you is the promise Jesus gives, that there is a king who will reign on his throne for eternity, and we get to be part of his kingdom in heaven. And that king is Jesus. When life goes from victory to misery, remember that Jesus, in Jesus, there is always victory. So family, you feel like that whack-a-mole, you stand up strong in Jesus Christ, and you know that you are not alone, no matter how dark that cave Oh, how crazy that wilderness. Let's pray. Mighty God, we come before you, Lord, and I thank you, God. That we have been given a roadmap in our struggle, a roadmap in our faith of how to trust you, how to sink to you in that wilderness cave. And Lord, I pray that our our brothers and sisters here today 
would learn to just bring their complaint to you when they have one, God. When things just aren't turning out the way they expected them to do when they look to Jesus, that they would remember, Lord, that, that you've got a purpose in this struggle. God, I pray that they would remember that you are always with them. God, I pray that they would remember that in Jesus they have purpose and identity. And Lord, I ask that they would cling to you as David clung. We sing praises to you, God. Say, Lord, though all the earth give way, you are my refuge. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church family, would you stand to your feet as we sing this closing song? Prayer team, please make yourself available. And family, we'd love for you to just reach out, ask someone to pray with you. And uh, let's sing this song, making it a prayer of our hearts in the midst of the valleys that we walk in.